Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Deb Radcliffe. Deb was the first journalist to make cybercrime a beat starting in 1996. She's the author of the new novel, Breaking Backbone, Book One, Information is Power, which is a techno thriller. Deb, welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Breaking Backbone, Information is Power, how would you describe the novel? Well, the tagline is, Globecom takes over the world through human chip implants and hackers rise up against Globecom. I would describe it as a book where corporate America is taking too much control over our daily lives through tech. And hackers saw this coming and a key character, her name was Cindy Frank, working at the Department of Defense, saw this coming, would not take the human chip implant, was told she couldn't go back to her day job working in digital forensics for the DOD unless she got the chip. So she bailed and went off into the Blue Ridge Mountains and started a hacker clan. And it took them 17 years to mount a war against Globecom to break its technical network backbones. And that's why I subtitled, I titled the book series Breaking Backbones. And it's a three-part series. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write this novel? I did. Um, as a cybercrime investigative reporter, I saw a lot of bad things, obviously. I've seen the mob. I've seen uh, the Defense Department bungle security budgets. And I've seen everything in between. So what really got me going on this particular theme of the human chip implants was Scott McNeely, who was a co-founder of Sun Microsystems. And in the early 2000s, uh, 2000 and, uh, I'd say 2004, 2005, he uh, stood up on a podium and said, I can chip my dogs. Why can't I chip my children? And I thought about that, about the privacy implications of a private company like Sun Microsystems owning the human chip implants. And what that would look like to society. I came home and I asked my three kids, age eight, nine, and 11, hey kids, what would you do if mom put a chip implant in you to make you safe so I could track you and make sure no one took you from me? They all said they would cut it out of their skin. <laughs> and that was what made me start the book. That's great. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you were the first journalist to focus strictly on cybercrime. What led you to writing and focusing on that? It was one of those things where everything aligns. So I was working at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat as a beat reporter. Uh, my job was temporary. And an internal email, because we did not have major email systems at the time. This was way back in 1995. An email came out. Someone needed help working on a book about computers. No computer needed. Knowledge needed. I ended up working on a bestseller about a hacker on the run named Kevin Mitnick. The author was John Littman. His book was called The Fugitive Game. And I did all the running around and research reporting for that because John had to stay behind to answer phone calls. This was pre-cell phone days. And so he would get a call in the middle of the night, two rings, hang up. That was his cue to go down to a pay phone and take his notepad and a flashlight and, uh, and he would be called back on that pay phone number. So he did that to avoid the FBI that was snooping on all of our calls and communications. And he needed someone to run around and verify or deny the Mitnick claim. So I chased him 
down mostly on the West Coast. I was at the Microsoft campus. He had applied for a job there. I found his apartment and uh, they let me have a tour of it. And so I was able to describe a lot of the different scenery around the stories that Mitnick was telling Littman so that he could use them for his book descriptions. That's great. Well, we now live surrounded by digital technology, as you know, ring surveillance cameras, people streaming live as they drive or walk down the street. We have ubiquitous smartphones and social media. And now Mark Zuckerberg wants us to live in the metaverse for a portion <laughs> of every day. I'm curious, given your knowledge of cybercrime, what do you think the average person is not aware of in terms of what cyber criminals are doing? First of all, I think the average person is more aware than ever, and I'm very happy because the timing of my book, it's been in my head for 20 years, and I'm finally putting it down on paper, and everybody's ready to receive the message. So awareness feels very much up to me, but as an 85-year-old said after she read the first 100 pages of my book, should I be scared? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I said yes. So the awareness around giving away our privacy for technical perks is hoping is what I'm hoping people will gather from this. That doesn't mean they won't do it. Uh, I have an associate who already has a chip implant in his hand. He and I were on a podcast together, and I a radio actually it was video, and I'm like, show me, show me, and it it was just it looked just as I described it, a little tiny bump in the skin about the size of a piece of rice, uh, cooked rice, and um, he says he uses it to open his door, start his car, and I said that's exactly how I'm describing them in the book. The problem is, is it's access to everything. So tech overreach is really what I want people to worry about. A lot of conspiracy theorists want to take this a little farther and think this is a government thing. But I really believe that the real danger is private corporate America and having too much power and control over our lives through tech. And while it's convenient, while social media is useful and I can't live without it now because I'm promoting a book. Mm -hmm. um, it's also very dangerous. It can get you caught. Well, you see what's happening with the, all the polarization and everything else. And Neil Stevenson wrote, or he called this a long time ago in his book called Seven Eats, where th three societies survived the almost the, the near death of Earth. And the space society killed themselves off down to seven women, seven Eves because of social media wars. They started fighting and then taking it seriously and then literally killing each other over social media wars. So that kind of stuff is what I'm hoping people will get, that not everything as it's, is as it seems in cyberspace and your privacy is at great risk. Sure. And and I'm, I mean, you know, I know we have limited time, but I'm just curious, like, where do you, where do you see this going in kind of the short term versus the long term? I mean, as as you mentioned, people will give away their privacy for um, you know what some would call useful tools for communication. We see the you know the big five tech companies, and you know obviously as you've talked about polarization, and then on the other side of the spectrum, we have you know uh, um, coders who are. Um, uh, who are contributing to open source projects to kind of hopefully combat some of the the big tech. But but where do you see things going in the real world, short term versus long term? First of all, Jeff, I appreciate your knowledge on technology around this. It makes this interview so much easier. Um, that's what 
actually, I wanted to drill all the way down to DevOps. So I'm glad you brought that up because I also write a column called um, Shift Left Academy and it's for educating developers. So the scary thing now is that the bad guys have figured out they can get down to our code base. They can get all the way down to the code libraries where the developers are are grabbing free bits of code, like this log4j thing was actually part of an Apache update. Um, we just had a Java developer who had a very popular library that developers were using, and he got mad and he went in and put a bunch of uh, bad stuff in his latest updates to his Java code. And now that code is embedded everywhere. People have downloaded it. And now it's making systems screech to a halt because he's put some logic in there that's making the applications not work anymore. Ha ha, funny me. What it is doing is it is showing the vulnerability all the way down to the bottom of the supply chain. And the, you know, DevOps was also heavily involved in the SolarWinds sun breach attack, uh, started in, you know, a breach in DevOps, ended with a, the DevOps build server. Um, when it was compiling the code, the only time you can't tell if it's bad or not, and they had something secret hidden in that point, and then it went out to people who downloaded the patch updates. So when you're looking at the infrastructure, and code is the infrastructure now, it gets really dicey. Honestly, I don't see any way to clean this up unless we erase everything and start over, and no one's going to do that. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you had this novel idea originally years ago. What led you to finally write the book? Well, this isn't something I've actually made public, but in 2018, I had a big scare with my health. And I've been living with a life-threatening illness for 34 years now. And that's the first time I ended up in the hospital because of it. And I realized that mm, I'm getting older and the story is going to get outdated. And I really want to get it out before anything bad happens. I wanted to sort of be my gift to the world and the tech community in general, because the technologists are working really hard to try to keep all this bad stuff from happening. Um, and so I actually have chief security officers under the gun in book one. Um, they they are in a, in a bid for power against, uh, to take over a new Globecom after the first Globecom goes down. So I'm really trying to show how it looks behind the scenes without making it too technical so that the readers who are not technical can also enjoy the book. Sure. Well, what was your writing process when you were working on the novel? Did you outline it extensively or did you just have this idea in mind and just kind of dive into the narrative? What was that process like for you? Well, because it's been in my head for 20 years, I had character names. I knew they were going to live in a cave. I knew it was going to be the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, because they have hot water uh, there and they can generate power off of it. So I had all this in my head for years. What I ended up doing was having little outlines here and there, and I'd start to work on it and then I'd stop. But in 2018, when I really dove in, I went um, from that original outline to a much more extensive outline just saying what's going to be in it because I was afraid I would forget. I had the whole story kind of laid out in my head, but I was afraid if I started writing, I would forget how that story is going to go, how it's going to look in the middle and how it's going to look at the end. So I, I do outline. I'm finishing book two. It had an outline. Book three is already outlined. For me, it just helps me keep track 
of the main themes I want to get in there. A lot changes once I start writing to the outline, but I do start with outlines. And was it a big change for you to write fiction after years as a journalist? Yes. As a journalist, you know, my editors love me because my stuff comes in clean. They don't have to edit it very much. As a, as a uh, fiction writer, the whole thing about show it, don't tell it, show it, don't tell it, that's in my head every time I write because I want to try to explain things. As a person who explains technology and explains why this is a bad thing and what businesses need to do to protect themselves, that's my daily writing. So I had to get out of that explaining thing and just jump right into storytelling. And I still find weaknesses in book two where I've done some explaining and all I need to do is either do a back uh, story where I, t- I show it, don't tell it, or I need to change it into present tense and show it, don't tell it. So I'm still editing stuff like that out of book number two. So it's the show it, don't tell it really helps me. Um, keep the action sequences going, keep the dialogue going, keep the, descript- the descriptions of the scenery going better. Gotcha. And, and given your experience of writing this novel after years of writing nonfiction uh, journalism about cybercrime, what writing advice would you give to other writers who are working on their own stories or novels? Even before I did this, I've always told people, use your own voice. If you try to sound like someone different, like everyone tells me I need to be Neil Stevenson, he goes very deep into the tech. I don't want to be Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson is Neil Stevenson. I have my own voice. I talk a certain way and I write a certain way. And it works. It, it, it moves a little bit fast, keeps you on the edge of your seat. I really want to see this as a TV series. I have a friend who thinks she can't write. She uses words like ate and got, and she's a little bit maybe slightly backward, she thinks. She sent me an essay. I wanted to cry. She used her own voice. It was beautiful and simple and sort of like, um, uh, you know, old writers of the old days when they use that kind of language. And she couldn't believe that I loved her work so much, but she stuck to her own voice. And I think almost everybody could be a writer if they weren't so scared of how they're supposed to sound. So my first advice is use your own voice. My second advice is we're always going to feel like we're a fraud when we're writing. 90% of what I'm writing, I know really well. But right now I've got scenes in France and China in book number three that I've, I've never actually been to China. So I have to do a ton of research and global maps and all kinds of different things to get these scenes set right. Um, luckily, I've read Amy Tan and a few other books by Chinese authors, so I sort of get the female hierarchy, because that's what's in book two and book three. There's an honored mother character. Um, so do your research. Uh, start with an outline if that helps you. Um, if you get lost, back up. Give yourself a couple of days to go back, reread. You'll be surprised that you'll see repeats and things in there because you got a little lost in your text. And above all else, don't be afraid to use the voice that you speak in. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Okay, so all of Neil Stevenson's book. I love The Time Traveler's Wife. Um, Obviously, Doug Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's even mentioned in the book when uh, Cindy becomes Scientia, Psy for short. That's her hacker handle. She leaves the Department of Defense and she leaves a computer screen 
image up of the dolphins floating up to the sky with a message saying so long and thanks for all the fish. And fish is spelled P-H-I-S-H. And that's a total take on Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the beginning opening scene of, of that book. Dean Kuntz, who you've interviewed, awesome. Um, we go back to classics too in high school that really got me thinking like to kill a mockingbird. Um, interestingly enough in my freshman year, um, the reason I like those kind of books is because they make an impact on society. They made me understand racism in a whole new way. Um, that one did. And interestingly enough, when I was writing in my English classes, my freshman English teacher got so mad at everything I wrote. Like one was uh, what we did to the Native Americans in the, in the um, Black Hills and how we, you know, the t- Trail of Tears and how we made all these promises and then ended up destroying a lot of them anyway. And he was a uh, redneck. He hated my thesis, but he loved my execution. So I got a C for content and an A for execution because he didn't. He was yelling at me in red line. They were prisoners of war, God damn it. And like he was mad at what I wrote. And then my second year English teacher told me that I would, um, she would come out of her grave if I didn't grow up to become a writer. So I like making an impact and I like books. I like reading books that make an impact on society, like To Kill a Mockingbird as well. So I like the classics and I like the currents. Um, that's, that's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel? Sure. So the full bio and history of me is at www.debradcliffe.com. That's got all my magazine articles and everything you want to know about where to find my book. But the book is also available at every major outlet. My publisher, Archway, has got it at Barnes & Noble and all of the bookstores. Even small bookstores can order it. Uh, It's at amazon.com. And to search it, you should put in the whole title. Breaking Backbones, colon, information is power. My last name is spelled Radcliffe with no E on the end. So you could also look up Deb Radcliffe uh, and you can see it there. Uh, find the book that way too. Um, so especially my website though, it has a history of all my articles. And it's sort of, if you had time, you could look and see, oh, <laughs> she's been to the Department of Defense Forensics Lab. She did a whole feature on that. You know, um, that's in the book. So a lot of this places I've been for my day job are included in the book. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Deb Ratcliffe, author of the new novel, Breaking Backbones, Information is Power. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Deb, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. This is quite an honor. Great. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 